Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Solver with the American Journal of Managed Care, and I'm speaking today with Denise Basso. Did I say it right? Perfect. Oh, great. So um, I was reminding Denise that I interviewed her probably about seven or eight years ago at HIMSS when it was in New Orleans. Um, and she is the president and CEO of Walters Clear Clinical Effectiveness Business Unit. Um, and it's a part of the company that produces products that all of us use all the time. My favorite being up to date. I'm sure that most clinicians in practice would list that as one of their favorites as well. Um, but they also um, produce Lexicomp, Metaspan, and Emmy. Um, she got her MD from Baylor College of Medicine and completed an internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins University. I really can't think of a better person to talk with about today's topic. Um, and, and that is a new report um, released by Walters Kluwer called Transparency and Trust Underpin the Best Evidence of the Moment. Um, and a very important topic because we're, what we're getting at is talking about how, um, how you produce uh, real science, evidence-based science, as opposed to what unfortunately has become uh, a, com- a competition to evidence-based science, which is pseudoscience and, and fake health news. Um, so I thought we'd start out today, Denise, by um, having you put this report into perspective. It's the second of what'll be five reports um, about the forces that are shaping healthcare in the future. So could you tell us just briefly about the genesis of the project as a whole and what you and the company are hoping to achieve by this effort? Yes, thanks, Pat, and thanks for the introduction. Uh, COVID has, as you know, like many crises in our history, not necessarily created new problems, but accelerated old ones. So whether we're talking about virtual care, AI, healthcare worker shortages, data quality, or as we're discussing today, driving medical decisions based on the best evidence, none of these are new issues or new ideas but all of them seem to have been accelerated or highlighted by the pandemic. But I I think the interesting thing is that crises also tend to spark innovation and COVID is uh, no exception here either. So we're hoping that by shining a light on some of the challenges raised by COVID, we can help drive the conversation towards more change and more innovation to, to solve some of these challenges. Well, that's great. I completely agree with you. I think, as horrible as a pandemic has done, um, it's making our, our usually very s- slowly moving um, healthcare move much faster. So that that's a good thing that the delivery system and the science are evolving. So um, the report uh, focuses on two key issues that we face really not only in healthcare, but as I mentioned, other aspects of our life, misinformation, disinformation, and sometimes even just too much information confuses consumers and healthcare uh, providers alike. And they're left wondering, who do I trust? What is really true? Um, How did you approach this critical issue in this report? Yeah, the the challenge of sifting through the available information so we can do the right thing for patients has been there for years, but it's been in different forms. So you talk about the, the acceleration of things, 
we used to talk about it taking 10 or more years to disseminate information and change medical practice. Now, information dissemination isn't the issue, but the ability to evaluate the quality of that information and synth synthesize it into action has become the challenge. And again, none of this is necessarily new with COVID, but COVID seems to have unlocked the opportunity and, and I would say maybe even given permission to accelerate the information overload. And I believe it's likely to cause permanent change in how we think about the publication of, of medical information. So we wanted to call attention to that change because as a medical community, we owe it to patients to adapt to these changes and, and still practice the highest quality evidence-based medicine. We tried to outline some of these issues in the report, but then most importantly, talk about real solutions that already exist that certainly have room for innovation, but that can begin to address problems even today. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those, but I thought before we do that, um, if you could talk to us about the magnitude of the problem, you had some pretty big numbers in your report, number of publications, preprints, et cetera. Yeah, well, one of my, uh, one of my favorite stats now is that on January 30th, this year, there were 50 studies published on COVID. And we thought that was really fast because it happened in about 20 days. But now, if I search the National Library of Medicine database on COVID-19, I get over 63,000 matches of peer-reviewed articles. And I've seen estimates of more than 140,000 publications if you include preprints. And that doesn't even include abstracts that are published after a study's complete, but before the, the full paper is released. Or to your point, some of the leaks that we've been hearing as early results of studies are talked about before any data are available for review. Now, there's good reason for this. We're in a crisis, people are dying, and no one wants to hold back on potentially life-saving information. But at the same time, we can't throw all caution to the wind because we can do real patient harm. And I, I think the hydroxychloroquine story is a, a good example uh, of that. Um, if you recall, there was initially a lot of excitement about hydroxychloroquine, and, and there was a really good biologic rationale for that, because in the lab, the drug works against several viruses, including coronavirus. But, but those of us who make a living interpreting the medical literature were initially very cautious about its use, because the early data about its efficacy in patients with COVID-19 was pretty weak while we knew that there was a potential for adverse effects. And then as more evidence began emerging, including small preprint trials, observational studies, it began to become clear that there was really no benefit from the drug. Now, we all remember the major study on hydroxychloroquine that had to be retracted. But by that point, at up to date, as an example, we were already convinced that hydroxychloroquine shouldn't be used outside of clinical trials. And, and actually the retraction didn't change any conclusions we'd already, we'd already drawn. So I, I bring this example up because um, it's, it's a good example of where careful examination of the data can work, even amidst a swirl of news media, political commentary, studies rushed to publication and studies that ultimately had to be retracted. It, it doesn't mean that the medical community didn't treat a number of patients unnecessarily or, or didn't cause harm along the way, but I think that's where a, the trust issue becomes vital. There were trusted resources that got this right and could have been relied upon to minimize patient harm. So um, 
talk to us a little bit about the different ways that things end up getting out there in the public. I mean, it used to be years ago, we would all say, oh no, you have to go to a peer reviewed journal. But now, as you mentioned, there are preprint publications. I want you to tell me what those are. There's gray literature, what's that? And then there's, you know, the, <laughs> the publication that everybody goes to, which is social media. And, um, and there's also pay to play. What, what, what's going on with all these different things and how, could, how can a clinician or a consumer think about what source they should go to? Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned a lot of uh, different types, <laughs> types of uh, information. Um, maybe we'll uh, start with, uh, with preprints um, as, as one, because that's definitely become a lot more uh, prevalent uh, with, with the pandemic. A preprint article is um, simply a full draft research paper that's shared publicly before it's been peer reviewed. So that means the study's complete, the results are written in full by the authors, but there haven't been additional experts who've been able to weigh in on the quality of, of the data or its conclusions. Um, gray literature is- well, like before, um, before you move on, I, I wanna ask you something about that because when I first became aware of preprints, I said, hey, that's cool, having gone through a peer-reviewed publication process myself and having gotten comments, which made me feel like the people didn't get what I was talking about at all, I'm sure all authors say that, but it ended up taking like more than a year to get my paper through the process. So the preprint gets the information out there sooner, and there is a peer review because we all go over and read it and comment on it. Um, so how, how do, where do you think that fits compared to ultimately ending up getting it in the New England Journal with, you know, the, the formal peer review process. Is, is it a reasonable thing to rely on that? Where, how should we think about it? Yeah, I mean, like, like most things, um, preprints aren't all good or, or all bad. Um, I, you know, I've, I've uh, had a chance to look this up recently. And um, in one study, I found about a third of articles that ultimately had to be retracted were, were preprints, which means two-thirds were, were fully peer-reviewed articles. Um, and preprints certainly allow for the rapid dissemination of information at a time when we're literally facing new questions every day and none of those questions have been answered before. I, I'd also be remiss if I didn't say that, that peer review isn't 100% either. Um, there was a, another study, uh, I saw a fairly recent one from some Australian researchers and they found that 8% um, of around 13,000 articles published on COVID were peer reviewed and accepted for publication the same day, which calls into question the, the quality of the, the peer review. So certainly a lot shorter than the, the year that you described. Um, and, and then they went on to find conflicts of interest in, about, in, in over 40% of those articles. Um, so, so if I think about what we're left with, um, I still believe peer review is the uh, is the bedrock of clinical research. In medicine, we're taught to hold each other accountable, and that's a critical principle of peer review. But another critical bedrock of evidence-based medicine is looking at the totality of the evidence, not just a single piece of data. And this, I think, is where we have the, the real challenge in medicine. As you know, all of us are taught in medical school to read the medical literature, how to interpret a research study, and how to evaluate the quality of that publication. But very few of us have the time to read all of the relevant literature, it's, it's just too vast. 
And even if we did have the time, the ability to take a single piece of information in a, in a particular study and synthesize it with all of the other literature published to, to arrive at a single action is a skill that, that most physicians either don't possess or certainly don't have the time uh, to do. So I'll just give you um, another example. Let's say there's a study published that finds that drug A is better than drug B for patients with hypertension. Let's also say it's a high quality randomized controlled trial, it's been peer reviewed and we believe the, the results are valid. What do we do? As a primary care physician, do I call up all of my patients with hypertension who are on drug B and tell them to switch to drug A? What if they're already doing well on drug B? What if drug A is more effective but has more side effects? Or what if it's much more expensive or harder to be compliant with because it has to be taken multiple times per day? These aren't trivial questions to answer, but now multiply this by the hundreds of questions that come up in patient care each week and, and you begin to understand the magnitude of the problem. So I think the, the question here is not just the quality of something like preprint articles, it's what's the best way to evaluate the totality of the evidence when we're making medical decisions? And what's the answer to the question? <laughs> uh, yeah, so- Is um, up to date? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to say that that was the answer to uh, everybody's problems, but um, uh, I probably can't do that. Um, so, you know, I think we, we've tried to um, really identify six, what, you know, six things that we think are um, pretty critical to sifting through um, just the, the vast amount of information and the, the widely varying sources and quality of those sources of information. Um, so I, I think the, the first thing is we need to acquire and synthesize the evidence. We shouldn't ever be looking at one study in isolation, regardless of its source. We need to consider, as I said, the totality of the evidence on a particular question or topic. So think of the hydroxychloroquine example when uh, you could be really fooled by any piece of any single piece of information or some things that you read in the news or on, or, or, or on social media. Um, but when you looked at the totality of the evidence, it really told the story. Second, uh, you, you need to have people with the right expertise to evaluate the, the evidence. Uh, these evaluators need to have both clinical expertise and expertise in uh, clinical epidemiology or evidence-based medicine so they can both understand the quality of the data and how it applies to clinical practice. So think of my hypertension example where you not only need to understand all of the relevant data but also have to answer some very practical patient care questions. The third thing is, just as peer review is a bedrock of clinical research, there needs to be peer review in the synthesis of that information. For example, at UpToDate, which I know well, as, as we're summarizing the literature and making recommendations, we have at least three different people reviewing every word of that synthesis to make sure the interpretation is, is correct and, and without bias. Uh, the fourth area is that when anyone is making recommendations for patient care, there needs to be transparency behind those recommendations. As you know, sometimes in medicine, the, the data are crystal clear, high quality, and virtually all experts would agree on the answer. More often, the data aren't so crystal clear, 
but experts can still make recommendations. We just owe it to the readers to be transparent about the strength of the data behind those, those recommendations. Fifth, we need to balance speed and rigor. Uh, when I say speed, I, I don't believe the goal is to be a news service or to be first to press, but to be really practical about the, the speed that's required and, and triage based on importance, importance. If something is really critical, there are ways to fast track the peer review process that don't compromise quality. And finally, sixth, um, information needs to be easy to find and, and ideally integrated into workflow. Physicians are incredibly busy. The information needs to be available in the right place at the right time, or it simply won't be used at the point of care where it's needed most. Built into the EHR, is that what you're uh, talking about? Yeah, I mean, the EHR is certainly the, you know, that, that's the workflow uh, of the day. But even if you think about, um, uh, you know, virtual care, which has become more prominent, um, you know, these days, there are likely to be new, new workflows that evolve out of, that are, that are more relevant for that. And, you know, maybe those workflows exist within the EHR, maybe they exist elsewhere. Um, but wherever, uh, wherever the clinician is operating, um, that's where the informa information needs to be. So I diverted you from the list of the things besides peer review publications, and, I, I, and we talked about preprint, but could you um, talk to us a little bit about gray literature, what you mean by that, and, um, and this pay-to-play uh, kind of publications that we're seeing. My, my own experience with that, because I, I write for consumers, and people ping me all the time and say, would you, would you review our product, blah, blah, blah. And then I go over and they'll have on their site their literature, right? And, and they use that to say, see, it, it works. We've proved that it works. And then you find out that it was actually a pay-to-play publication. Um, so it's creating really, I think, deception, misinformation just by being held up as a standard for science. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, so, you know, gray literature is, is um, a pretty broad term and, and can mean different things. It tends to mean things that haven't gone through the, the peer review process. So it could be abstracts that are published before the, the full journal article has, um, has been written. It could be um, information that comes out from the, the, uh, the FDA. It could mean just you know a variety of um, types of, of information that are available, but just haven't gone through um, any sort of peer review process. And typically, is not um, it's not like a preprint article because it's usually not a full research study. Pay to play is an, an interesting one. Um, you know, it's it's uh, also um, could be you know the, another name for it is open access, um, and the open access movement was really came about for good reasons. Um, it was started by academics who re, were rebelling against the high price of medical journals and believe that the public is entitled to view the results of that research. Um, as you know, medical studies are often paid for by government grants, and there are those who believe that we shouldn't have to pay for it again to read the outcomes. But uh, as you mentioned, there most certainly have been well-publicized uh, issues with open access. And in some cases, there are fraudulent journals that are created to try to scam academics. Um, in uh, other cases, the journals profess to have a, a more robust peer review process than they actually do. 
I, I, I do again want to mention there are some high quality open access journals, but like most other things in life, this should be a case of, of buyer beware. And again, it, as I already spoke about, there's no substitute for careful evaluation of the medical literature. And that includes understanding the quality of the publication, the quality of the peer review process, the quality of the data of that study, and the quality of the, the data overall when, when coming to a conclusion uh, about a particular problem. As a busy clinician who may be overwhelmed by, I mean, it seems like a new journal comes out every day. I keep getting pinged. You want to put an article in my journal? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. how, how can they, outside of the ones that we know are going to be always going to be really good, like New England Journal and JAMA and Annals of Internal Medicine and things of that sort, how can docs uh, and other clinicians evaluate um, the quality of a journal? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't think there's any um, magic answer to this. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, it's, um, you know, goes back to, to basic principles, again, that we've, we've all learned about how to read the literature. It goes back to finding um, sites that will synthesize those articles that you trust. Um, and again, there are trusted sites out there. And I, I think that that trust issue is is a really critical one. Um, you know, I think it's it's finding those trusted sources that can not only um, help draw, you know, give recommendations or conclusions, but can also um, help find the the uh, or do the a careful evaluation and understand even when there are new journals published or even existing journals that um, you know you really need to do a careful evaluation. I, I think it's that. Uh, it's finding those trusted sites that the critical piece of it. Um, and, uh, and, and again, um, not to repeat myself too often, um, but not trusting a single source, um, you know, really needing to look at um, the totality of, of what's out there. Okay. Um, well, this is, this has been very helpful. I think we covered everything. Was there anything else that you wanted to, um, to bring up while we're having this conversation? Um, yeah, I mean, th thanks a lot for uh, bringing up this topic and, and letting us have a conversation about it. Um, as I, um, you know, reflect on, on my career, this is uh, something that I'm also passionate about. It wasn't, um, wasn't the plan when I initially <laughs> decided to go to medical school, but um, I've now devoted almost 25 years to trying to improve the quality of patient care by getting the, the best evidence into the hands of, of clinicians who, who care for, uh, for those patients. I, I would say, the, as I do some of this reflection, though, that I, I've really come to realize that in the last uh, several years that, that that isn't enough. I think the, the flaw in that strategy is that patients are really the, the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And they also need access to the best available information in, in ways that allow them to engage in um, and participate more actively in their care. So I guess my final thought is, is not to forget the patient uh, in all of this. And it requires a, a different method of information dissemination and engagement on the patient side. But um, I think activating our patients is as critical as, as anything I've just described and, and should be a, a high priority for all of us. And then I guess the, the last thing I would say is um, beyond patients, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has, um, again, as, as terrible as it's been and feels like it's going to continue to be for a while, um, it has spurred some um, real-time innovation uh, and it's, it, it is beginning to 
caused changes in the way that care is delivered. Uh, I think the application of clinical evidence and some of the lessons we've learned around that is just one example. So um, for any listeners who are interested, we're, we're releasing three more reports on, on other forces of change um, throughout the, the pandemic uh, before the end of 2020 and, and would love to share those. Well, thank you very much. And on behalf of American Journal of Managed Care, I want to I thank you for taking the time to um, share all of this, this with us. And, uh, and thank you very much for the work that you do. I mean, it's been a huge contribution, I believe, to the practice of medicine. And um, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about the other reports when they come out. That's fantastic. Thanks, Pat. Uh, I'd love to. To learn more, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.